Let's okay. pray. Uh, actually, can I have Jesse? Can you hand it out to all yes. new people? Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the Bible, to delve deep into your word. We know that this is an incredible privilege. Not all believers get this uh, opportunity. There, are, there are, We have brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Um, and so let us not take this lightly, but let us really uh, enjoy and praise you for this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, actually, uh, my intention all along was to make this a two-part series. As I was preparing and researching this, I realized I need to make this a three-part series. <laughs> and then I felt uh, really <laughs> fatigued by that thought. And uh, the fact that I had already done essentially uh, three Sunday school lessons already, this being the fourth. So, uh, this is going to be the only one. <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot missing. Um, actually, it's really focused on this one particular aspect. But there's a lot missing uh, uh, because I really had, I had a whole lesson where we're going to look at the um, prophets. We're just going to focus on actually the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, but uh, I have a whole section on the prophets and a whole section on the New Testament. All that is for another time. Yeah. It'll be fun. We will... Who needs pens? Oh, sorry. There you go. Anyone else? Yes. Don't throw it. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a thrower. Where's the recorder? What? Oh, this. Oh, the recorder. Okay. Uh, is it on? Uh-huh. Yes. All right, so um, all that to say, uh, so we're basically looking at, um, we're basically going to focus on the first five books of the, of the Bible, and uh, uh, because the first five books, called the Torah, really lays down the law of Israel, right? And so we're going to look at how the laws of Israel uh, speaks to this uh, uh, idea of social justice, which is so prevalent in, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. So let, I, I thought I, uh, we'd begin with Psalm 146, which I think is a beautiful psalm. Um, so Andrew, can you read Psalm 146? Let's just read that first paragraph. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Yeah, so what's going on there? Basically, the psalmist is starting out by mm-hmm. meditating on the character of God, the being of God. And he's adoring God, right? He's worshiping God. And so what does he praise God for? What what what? aspects of God's character does he delight in. Let me skip the second paragraph. Nathan, can you read verse 5? The paragraph starting with verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yeah, I think, uh, let me just zero in on that word justice. Um, it's... Uh, almost a little surprising for us because we expect it to say in verse 7, who executes mercy for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. But the psalmist uses this word, which we see again and again, every time it speaks of God's engagement with the poor, um, the word justice. And so it really stretches our understanding of justice so that it can't just be criminal justice in terms of of, of uh, right and wrong, uh, in terms of like breaking laws, but this is justice in terms of uh, how humanity is supposed to relate to one another, um, and specifically with regards to poverty. And so this concept of biblical social justice is this, that poverty is an injustice. I think this concept really stretches our understanding in our mind, because we typically think of poverty as what? Poverty is basically the fair fruits of a life of maybe lack of industry or, or uh, mistakes or unwise choices. And the Bible actually has a very complex view, which is that is true to some degree. Actually, that may be largely true, very complicated. But the Bible also speaks about poverty as not just a result of, of, of mistakes and flaws, but as a matter of injustice so that it is out of the hands of the poor. And we'll see that as it goes on. Um, uh, let's read the next paragraph. Can I have, who's next? Nathan. Oh, no. Chelsea. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Yeah, so three classes of people. I, I spoke about this in my sermon. Three classes of people are uh, 
identified. Sojourners. Um, sojourners is it? it uh, who knows what sojourn means? Yes. Sojourn means to <laughs> means to travel. Uh, you can use the word pilgrim. Um, and the reason why the Bible specifically uses this word to describe uh, immigrants is for theological reasons. Who knows why? Who? Uh, let me pin down the seminarian. Why? What's the theological reason? Because Abraham was a sojourner. Yes, exactly. So Abraham. Israel, the people of God, were always described as sojourners. So it's it deliberately evoking that image, right? Because Israel was sojourners, therefore they are to have uh, a compassion and, and, and uh, love for other sojourners, right? And specifically, this is immigrants. So they don't use the word immigrants. Actually, in the NIV translation and so forth, because the NIV is always trying to help you understand. They don't even use the word sojourner. Do you know what? Who knows what word the NIV uses? Aliens. Aliens, yeah, aliens and foreigners, right? But the uh, ESV <coughs> translation, which is, we're using, much more literal, which I like, because it helps you to think about, like, all the connections. This is the word sojourner. But, but for us, it's a little bit like we don't know what sojourner is, right? So think immigrants. And then the other class is widow. Everyone knows what widows are, right? Um, these are uh, women whose husbands have passed away in a society in which men made all the money. This put them in a very precarious situation. And it says the fatherless... which is really orphans. So if you, if you consider these three classes of people, widows, immigrants, orphans, you see that it really isn't a matter of hard work or, or, or unwise choices because these three classes did not make unwise choices, right? They, it's not a matter of laziness. It is a matter of their circumstance. They are poor because of their circumstance and the Bible says that is an injustice. That poverty is an injustice. It should not be, right? So, um, uh, one one more thing. Verse 9, I think, is very interesting. It says, the Lord watches over these three classes of people, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And that's a little bit um, uh, arrest, uh, that, that's a little bit uh, uh, arresting because um, we expect it to say, but the way of the what? The rich, Right? So verse 9, he contrasts uh, the poor with the, not with the rich, but the wicked. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? You guys notice? Right, in fact, if you look at the end of verse 8, it says, the, the Lord loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So is he saying rich people are evil? And then is he saying the, uh, oh, poor people are righteous? Any thoughts? <clears throat> I like your nerdy glasses. <laughs> <laughs> They're so intense. Um, so here's the here's the answer, right? Um, the Bible never says the poor are wicked. I mean, the poor are righteous. The 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 rich are wicked. What, what instead he's talking, if you, it, it, it's a little bit subtle, but in verse 9 it says the Lord watches over. So the righteous watches over the poor. So the, the righteous is defined as defending the poor. And the wicked are those who neglect the poor. Okay? So I think this is very key. Um, we, tip, we typically think of righteousness as what? Certain moral categories like Fidelity to your wife, um, uh, uh, don't no theft, no stealing, um, um, what well, telling the truth, right? We think of these, we, we think of it in these, these sort of uh, common ethical categories. But the Bible adds to that definition engagement, love for defending the poor, because these these three classes of people are defenseless. They're they're in a vulnerable position, and to be wicked is not just stealing, it's not just committing adultery, it's not just murder, it's neglecting the poor. So if you say the poor look at their situation that, that has nothing to do with me. Even if you don't do anything, even if you don't attack them or, 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 or otherwise oppress them, just by holding back, the Bible says that is wicked. Wicked because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Poverty is itself a function of brokenness. It's not, it's, it's, um, not the way God has always intended it. And so um, we see that reflected 
in Old Testament Israel. So we're going we're gonna to focus on Old Testament Israel. Because Israel was always the people of God, was always supposed to live out this vision of beauty and righteousness and goodness. And therefore, Israel is a community of, ju- of social justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, very beautiful passage. Uh, where are we? Uh, uh, Christine. There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Yeah, I think verse 4 is really a, an amazing statement. Um, if Israel lives according to this vision laid out in the Torah, according to the way God has always intended it, there will be no poverty. Poverty will be completely eliminated. And therefore, it really underscores, again, poverty is itself an injustice. Inequalities of wealth is an injustice. Um, it was not the way it's supposed to be. And I like the way verse 5 says the condition if only you will strictly obey. And so that's what we're going to look at. What do you mean obey? What is this matter of obedience? The laws of Israel were always designed to eliminate poverty. There was not supposed to be poverty. Uh, There was not supposed to be gross inequality of wealth. There was not supposed to be the super wealthy accumulating vast wealth. That was never supposed to be according to the laws of Israel. So before we dive into the laws of Israel, any questions about this concept of social justice? Yes. Was this unique to Israel at any of the surrounding Absolutely. Um, if you look at, uh, 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 we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, Israel to some degree was not different from other nations, but that's because they violated the Torah. But if you look at the surrounding nations, like for example, Egypt. Egypt had high social stratification. So you had a small class of wealthy, basically who owned everything. You had a huge mass of people who were just grinding out, struggling. This was true in all the surrounding nations. Israel was absolutely unique, at least in the early stages, very egalitarian, very flat. There was no super wealthy, no, no grinding poor. Yeah. So in that sense, you know when Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, Israel is supposed to be uh, a righteous people, they were not just supposed to be righteous in the fact that they didn't obey, they didn't worship idols or they didn't commit murder, but also in, in terms of their social equality, social justice. That's a good question. Any questions? Any more? All right, let's dive in. I'm so excited. This, 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 I, I, I was like weeping as I was like looking at the laws in specific. So this is why if you need to next, you can, <laughs> you can read it. All right. Couple of, a uh, uh, couple of uh, principles. Um, the first thing you need to know is that land equals wealth. Okay. Cause, uh, this will help you understand the impact of this. Um, it doesn't make so much sense now because most of, uh, you know, a great deal of wealth is tied up in what, like stocks or like cash or some bonds or stuff like that. They didn't have any of that in the Old Testament, right? Like you would never just keep your money, like they didn't have banks. So you would never keep your money in a bag full of coins. I mean, that, you're just asking for trouble. You're asking to be robbed, right? 99% of your wealth is tied into your what? Into your land. Land means wealth, okay? So that's a very important principle. So principle number one, land ownership was evenly distributed in Israel. So in other words... At the very beginning, when Israel was constituted, when the people of Israel came into the land, the wealth was evenly distributed by family, right? It was, it was never supposed to be concentrations of wealth and then grinding poor. So Numbers 26, where are we now? Wade. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these lands shall be divided for, your, for inheritance according to the number of names. Yeah, let me just stop right there. Stop you right there. Um, I didn't list it there, but one of the reasons why Numbers is so boring... If you ever read it, if you read Numbers 26, the pre- it says verse 52. If you read the first 51 verses of Numbers, 20, chapter 26, you're like, oh, so boring. Because what happens is they do a census. And each tribe, they number with meticulous accuracy the number of people in the tribes. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is why I hate reading Numbers. Leviticus, very profound, very um, uh, powerful reason why the tribes are numbered. The reason is because what? Verse 54. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. Yes, let me stop you right there. What is that saying? Wait, uh, interpret that for me. Uh, just they divide the land based on the population. Yes. The reason why some tribes were bigger than others. The smallest tribe was Benjamin. The largest tribe was Judah. The reason why they uh, 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 were very, very uh, conscientious about um, the size of the tribe is because they want to divide the land evenly, right? This is that's why that's why they're numbered, 
right? I mean, it's not just like, hmm, how many people do we got, right? Um, keep reading, verse uh, 55. But the land shall be divided by lots. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. Right, so there's even distribution. And on top of that, the land distribution, once it was divided up to the, to the tribes, it was by lot. What does lot mean? So it's basically like a random drawing. Why is there a random drawing aspect? Who can tell me? Why do you think? Yes. So there's no favoritism, right? So this is the vision of Israel at the very beginning. Every family gets their fair portion of land based on uh, uh, their size, and there's no favoritism. It's completely random drawing. Joshua, uh, can I have Justin read it? Now Joshua took the land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal According to the tribal allotments. That's very important. Meaning, it's not just like, who's the strongest? Who's the bravest? You get the biggest land. You know, you did the most in the battle. No, it was evenly distributed according to allotments. Todd, can I read Jeremiah 19? And you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is going to possess. Yeah, if you read the Torah, like this is mentioned, like, honest, like eight times. Don't move your neighbor's landmark. Again and again, it's almost like, why, why, what's, what's the big importance? And the big importance is because um, the, 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 the land plots, right, were so significant, right? I mean, obviously it didn't look like this. Um, but there were these landmarks, right, that would mark off the territory. And so it was very important. I mean, there were so many laws that said, don't move these landmarks. Why? Because don't buy cheating or stealing or lying increase your plot size. That's very important. This plot of land is yours, your family's, right? Um, let's go on. So this is so evenly distributed. Next page, uh, number two. Land ownership could never be permanently transferred. All right. I put in the most prosaic terms, <coughs> but I hope you guys understand that this is radical. This is radical. You know what this means? There was no such thing as private property. You can never permanently transfer private property no one could no one could ever just vacuum up the land and own huge estates no family could ever lose their inheritance this land was permanently yours in your family forever you can never so so the so the land of israel was always supposed to be small landowning fa- uh, farmers families never concentrations of wealth so let's let's read uh, leviticus where are we uh, harry um, the land shall not be sold in Yeah, let me just stop right there. So two principles. Number one, nobody really owns the land. God owns the land. Okay? So everyone's just tenants. Everyone's just sort of like there by the grace of God. The second principle is the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Now, we're going to talk a little bit. You can actually sell it, quote-unquote, sell it temporarily, but you you can never lose title to the land. The land was yours forever. Now, why is that important? Because that ensured that there was no poverty. Because again, what? Land equals wealth. Meaning you can never truly lose your wealth. Um, uh, uh, keep going on. For your strangers and sojourners with you, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Yeah, let me just stop right there. So what happens is, okay, so let's say, you know, you're here. You're, um, you're, you're, I shouldn't say Bob. I was going to say Bob, but uh, that's obviously not a Jewish name. You know, you're... <laughs> <laughs> you're like farmer Koval, you know, and, <laughs> and you're farmer like Josiah. All right, so let's say you're Josiah, right? And you know you run into hard times, like your family gets sick, you know, or maybe um, some sort of uh, there's like a flood and it just floods your land. And farmer Koval is in his okay. So what you can do, and he's prospering, you know, he's working hard. He's got his sons working. And, all your sons are like in bed. And so you run into poverty and you try your best to get out, but you, you just grind your way into poverty. You could temporarily sell your land to your neighbor because he's prospering, he's doing well. But he, uh, your neighbor has to always allow for redemption. And what that means is um, you, you never lose your land, so you can always get your land back. In other words, the selling is really just a loan with um, collateral. 
the collateral being the land, right? Um, so let's read what, what redemption is. Verse 25, uh, keep going. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Yeah, his nearest redeemer. Who can tell me what, what this is talking about? You guys know? Famous. Famous if you go to Ruth. We're going to actually preach in Ruth soon. So basically, um, let's say Farmer Josiah somewhere else has a relative right here, right? And and um, he's doing well. So he's not doing well. He sells his land. So he, his relative can come back, buy the land back, and give it back to his relative, right? So you can, it's called a kinsman redeemer, right? Your, your relatives can always buy the land back. And by the way, this guy can never say, no, I bought the land. It's mine now. I love it. Um, <laughs> right? What does this say? It says, you shall allow redemption for the land. By law, you could not keep the land if someone was coming back for a redemption. Right? If someone says, here's the land. I mean, here's, here's, here's the amount of money that you bought it for. I'm paying you back. It's mine now. That was by law, right? So, uh, uh, verse 26. If a man has no one to redeem it, then himself, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return it to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. I hope you guys got that. Right? So let's say Farmer Josiah is <coughs> unable to redeem his land back. He has no kinsman redeemer. He has no family members who can buy it back. It doesn't matter, because in the year of Jubilee, he gets it back anyway, no matter what. And he doesn't have to pay back Farmer Tovel. He gets it back. In other words, every 50 years, the entire economic situation of Israel resets. So in 50 years, you know, there's some inequalities, disparities. 50 years, <laughs> resets. Meaning there can never be an accumulation of wealth and a grinding poor, because it just keeps resetting. Does that make sense? That's the year of Jubilee. That's the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, Every 50 years yeah. Um, uh, number three, right? Every 50 years, the original equitable distribution was restored. Leviticus 25. So can I have Jeff read that for me? You Just the first paragraph. Go ahead. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For, it's a, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. Yeah. This is really uh, a radical law. Imagine if the United States had this law, right? Everyone in the United States gets an equal distribution of land, equal distribution of wealth, Every 50 years, you get it back no matter what. Every 50 years, if your family suffers cancer, from, suffers uh, hardship, you go into poverty, you become homeless, at the end of the 50 years, you go back to the land. It's yours again, right? Um, uh, and then verse 14, can I have a Melissa read that? And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. Okay, so that last section, what is Melissa, that Melissa read, what is that saying? What is the uh, principles of actually purchasing the land? We always put purchase in quotes. What's the principle there? Prices in relation to? Yes. 
right? So, you know, let's say this is the year of Jubilee, right? And you purchase the land here, and let's say there's 30 years until the year of Jubilee. Now, you know, you, you can never purchase the land, right? Number one, because the land theologically belongs to God. Number two, no one can ever lose their land. There can never be a permanent transfer. So what you're really doing is you're what? You're buying the crops. You're buying the crop yields. Every year, there's a crop yield. You're really just purchasing the crops. You're never Because you, the land, you don't have access to. The land belongs to that family. So for 30 years, there's going to be crops. So you pay basically the equivalent of 30 years of crops. And so if you purchase it right here, and there's only 10 years left, the price of the land decreases because you're only buying 10 years of crops. Does that make sense? And so God here is dictating the terms upon which you can lease your land to somebody else when your family falls into destitution and poverty. Because in the end, at the end of 50 years, you get it back. Any questions or comments or clarification points? All right. Next point. Uh, uh, number four. Um, every seven years, the produce of the land was for the poor. All right, so this is really uh, 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 interesting. So on top of that, so the year of Jubilee and uh, 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 um, principles of land ownership was designed to, again, eliminate poverty, but there were other... So, But of course, there was poverty, right? Because, you know, fa- uh, either families uh, became ill, disaster struck that family, uh, maybe there was sin and evil, like drunkenness in the family. So there was still poverty, right? And so this is what God says how we're supposed to help the poor. Uh, Israel was supposed to help the poor. Every seven years, the produce of the land was for the poor. Um, where are we? Um, Erica, can you read Exodus 23? For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its field. But the seventh year you shall let it rest in my power, that the poor of your people may eat. Yeah. So you are a farmer, and for six years you sow, you gather in your crops, you reap. But in the seventh year, you're not supposed to do anything. Right? You're supposed to just let, let, let it lie fallow. Now, even when you lay it like fallow and you don't sow, the land still naturally. I, I have no idea who has an agricultural background. No one. Oh, you, you city slickers, right? <laughs> so, so apparently, <laughs> apparently, if you just leave the land alone, I don't know, like crops still grow. Some crops, right? Not in the full yield, not in the richness of if you intentionally did something. But it still produces food. That food you're not supposed to touch in the seventh year, right? That food is specifically for the poor to go and eat and gather, right? Um, Leviticus 25, where, where are we? Uh, uh, Ashley. Therefore you shall keep my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Okay, it's a little bit complicated, right? What is this saying? Who can translate this for us and explain what what's going on? It sounds like they're saying if they um, how can they eat in the seventh year? They can't. They can't. Uh, was it eat their fruits or whatever? Mm-hmm. So like, God's saying that He'll bless them in the sixth year so they have enough for three years. Yes, exactly. So, you know, this is, um, let's say this is year six, this is year seven, this is year eight. So, in the year, in year seven, you're supposed to let it lie fallow. And God's, and, and people are saying, how, we're going to starve. Because usually you produce enough crops to eat, and then that's it, right? And then you need, a, you need the next year's crops. So God says, in this year, the sixth year, I'm going to give you, how, how many fold? Is it threefold? Yeah. So I'm going to give you enough food for this year, enough food for this year, and then enough food for the eighth year. And the reason why is because at the beginning of the eighth year, you have to sow. So you don't actually harvest the food until at the very end. So really, it's two years where you're without food. And God says, don't worry. I'm going to give you a miraculous yield at the end of the sixth year. And the reason is so that you can leave this field fallow on the seventh year so that the poor can eat. That's the principle, right? I don't know how that would translate in the modern world, but I don't know. Imagine like you own a Starbucks, right? And uh, you're, you're running the business, you're gathering the profits. In the seventh year, you decide not to gather profits. 
Seventh year, the profits basically go to the poor. That's basically the principle that <laughs> that the Bible is laying out for the uh, uh, for, for the um, the help and the aid of the poor. Okay. So it's like a Sabbath principle built into it. It's a Sabbath principle, yeah. Because notice the number is not random. It's a holy year, right? It's a s- sabbatical year, exactly. And the year of jubilee is seven seven years, forty nine plus one. Which is telling us something about the future, because the Sabbath is always future-oriented. It's telling us something about what the, the, the new creation, the new world awaiting us is supposed to be. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Yes, seminary. Good insight. <laughs> um, where are we? I don't even remember. Oh, okay, number five. Each year, a portion of the harvest. So, so every seven, so, so here's the principle, right? Let's, let's recap. Every 50 years, all the land goes back. Uh, every seven years, the produce of your land goes to the poor. You can't touch it. Now, there's... But what about years one through six? There are provisions then, too. I hope you guys can start to appreciate how radical these laws were, how incredibly aggressive these laws were towards helping the poor, uh, giving to the poor. Verse uh, Number five, each year a portion of the harvest was set aside for the poor. Leviticus 19, where are we? Uh, Tracy. When you reap the harvest... Yeah. So let's say that this is your, you know, this is your plot of land, and what this is saying is that you can harvest all the land except the margins. You're supposed to leave it alone, and then the poor come and they can harvest that portion. That's for them. And it says, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly. I'm not a farmer, so. But apparently, let's imagine us city folks, you're out there and you're gathering in the harvest, right? As you're gathering in the harvest, there's a little bit that's left on the floor, right? You don't, you're not quite super efficient. Whatever is left on the floor, you can't touch. That's for the poor. So basically, and you see this in Ruth, there were two lines of workers. You have your workers gathering in the harvest, and they're probably scooping up 90%. And then you have poor people, widows, orphans, immigrants, picking up after the first line, because they get to eat. They get to have that, right? And then you can see that right there, verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, right? So some people didn't have uh, wheat crops, they had vineyards. So as you're picking up all the grapes, you can't strip the vineyard completely bare. You have to leave some grapes. And whatever grapes fall on the ground, you have to leave that alone because it's for the poor. Deuteronomy 24, um, David M. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather your grapes, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's a really beautiful principle. And I think the principle says that you're not supposed to give the poor a handout. Right? You're supposed to give them dignity. Because you're supposed to allow them to work for their own food, right? So that they're not, you're not just gathering in all the food and say, okay, here's a handout. You're letting them work for themselves, which gives them dignity and allows them to, to, to work hard. Because the Bible never says, you know, the poor are supposed to just, you know, be lazy recipients of aid. Uh, actually, Paul says in First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 3, the principle, he who doesn't work should not eat. Meaning, laziness is never an excuse for charity. Right, but you must work hard. He actually lays out another principle uh, about widows who gossip and who, you know, who uh, 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 um, just sow lots of trouble. Paul says, you know, don't help these women. Tell them to go get married. You know, um, but it's 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 for people who, through all their effort, they try hard. They're they're industrious, and yet through no fault of their own, relatively speaking, um, they're poor. Paul's, and uh, the Bible says we're supposed to have compassion on them. Um, Deuteronomy 23, uh, where are we? 
can I have an Aikman redact? You go into your neighbor's vineyard. You may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. You go into your neighbor's standing grain. You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, don't turn the page yet. Why are you guys turning page? Are you guys like, <laughs> did you guys understand that? <laughs> um, what is verse, what is Deuteronomy 23 saying? Translate that for me. Because this is trippy. I was like, what? Do what you can, but like, don't be greedy. Explain a little bit more detail. Because um, it's like, you're not, you're not hoarding, essentially. You eat till you're full. No, no, it says you go into your neighbor's vineyard. Oh, yeah, so like you can go into what, what? That means you're poor? Yeah, you're poor. And? Like you can reap the benefits of someone else's field, and you're not going to go in and like, like cut their standing grain and like hoard it or put it in a silo for like future years. Or yeah. So th- so check this out. Okay. This is this is crazy in my opinion. You're a poor person. You can just waltz into your neighbor's vineyard, right? <laughs> and just pick some food and just eat. You can do that as long as you don't put it in a bag. Now, why a bag? Because if you have a bag. You're like harvesting his, his, you're like, you can't do that, but you can eat. Meaning, if you're hungry, go and get food, right? Just as long as you're not harvesting the grain, because that's the, that's that person's hard work. You can't do that. But, so you know what this principle would look like in, if we, if we lived it out in America? It means you're a homeless, hungry person. You can just like, anytime walk into someone's home, I'm not here to steal. I'm just, I'm just gonna get a sandwich. Fix a sandwich. <laughs> as long as you don't pack two sandwiches and put it in a bag, that's wrong, right? That's the principle. How radical, how crazy is that? The poor were always supposed to have provisions so that they would never really be starving. Yes? So then, like, I understand, like, the idea of, like, the mercy behind this. But, mm-hmm. like, what's to prevent people from, like, or what's, how does this, like, prevent, like, enabling the poor? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Dude, why not just like, like why not right? just like yeah. lay back and just say, "I'm hungry." Yeah. Marsha, what are you cooking? <laughs> um, so the Bible absolutely has a balance, and 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 this is why like I'm condensing it to a single class, so it's a little bit unfortunate. But I'm focusing mostly on the aspect of justice, but there's definitely an aspect of responsibility that the Bible talks about, right? So the poverty is a result of drunkenness, it's a result of laziness, it's a result of sleeping too much, which is code word for laziness. Um, and so it's a balance. I don't know if that helps. But it's a balance. Like, like laziness, sleeping too much, like drunkenness, whatever, that's subjective kind of, right? Or is that like very clear cut? Like I can say I sleep for 12 hours a day, Mm-hmm. As an Would you call that lazy? What I, what I think is also interesting is that it is subject the Bible mm-hmm. absolutely condemns uh, evil that results in poverty. But if you look at all the social justice laws, it doesn't really say, you know, have a guard at your gate. Give them a test. Are you, are you poor because you're drunk or are you poor because you're sick? So, I don't know. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Complicated. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. Uh, number six, the poor were, be t- were to be given interest-free loans, right? Now, here's the quick thing. This is called um, interest-free loans. Who knows the fancy, fancy word for it? Let me pin down Wade. Huh? No, no, something. Who, who, that's not the fancy <laughs> word for it. Who knows the, the, the word? It was like big in the medieval era. Come on. <laughs> usury, right? So usury is... <laughs> oh man! <laughs> okay, okay. I thought you guys would know. All right, usury. Um, usury is exorbitant interest for uh, 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 poor uh, loans to the poor. Uh, it usually has to do with like a, a check in the cash or check cashing places, right? They're called usury laws. Actually, the the Bible, the the Old Testament talks about usury laws, not just exorbitant interest, no interest. The reason why is because it's a little bit hard for us to understand. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have loans for commercial reasons. Like you didn't have like this thriving business and you wanted to expand, have a little franchise, so you get a commercial loan. They didn't have that concept. Okay, no one got loans for commercial reasons. No one got loans to buy a house. You know why? Because the land was yours from the beginning, and also you built your own house. Um, all loans were for the purpose of of if you fell into poverty. 
right? So if you were poor, so your 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 farmer Josiah, you had a devastating harvest. You're gonna starve. So you go to your neighbor and you say, "Can you give me a loan?" And in that situation, farmer Tova could say, "Aha, I'm gonna exploit you. I will give you a loan, but you have to give me twenty percent interest, or something like that." And what does this law says? It says you cannot. First of all, you must give a loan. I didn't put the passage there, but you must give a loan. And number two, you cannot charge interest. Right? So let's read uh, Exodus 22. Where are we? Marshall. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Yeah, so you can't take advantage of his desperate situation, but you must extend a loan interest-free. Um, verse 26. Can I? Ciao. Yeah, this is a little bit hard for us to understand too. But in the ancient world, clothing was like a big bulk of your wealth. Um, uh, one item of clothing, first of all, styles didn't change. So you could pass it down through the generation. But one cloak was very expensive. You could, I mean, a huge amount of wealth was tied up into a single item of clothing. And so you would often take the cloak as collateral for the loan. But the law says you cannot keep it because that's for his shelter, for his warmth. You have to return it to him at night so he can sleep in it, right? In other words, you can't exploit the poor. No exploitation of their desperate situation, but you must extend loans uh, freely. And not only are you to extend loans interest-free, but if this person cannot pay you back at the end of seven years, debt is wiped clean, okay? Uh, number seven, Deuteronomy 15, where are we? Uh, uh, Carrie, can I be read it? Yeah, every seven years, debts are all cleared. Why? Because all debts were for the poor. In other words, every seven years, anything the poor own is cleared. Yes? Um, was it easy for someone who was poor to get a loan back during this time? Uh, the law was supposed to be that if somebody came to you and needed help and you were able, you had to give it to them. Uh, uh, number eight. Yes, down the court. Sorry, so like... How does how does this prevent people from not taking advantage of it, right? So this 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 uh, this envisions uh, a beautiful culture, a beautiful community where everyone has good intentions, everyone's doing it in good faith. Isn't the word poor like subjective? Or like, you know, of course. I could say I'm poor, but then you know how. Easy right. If we take you back to the Old Testament, we'll be like, "Wow, Queen Tracy, <laughs> you live so fabulously. You have a magic box that shows you." visions and pictures. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. So poverty is always relative. Um, uh, the tithe was for the poor. Deuteronomy 14. Uh, Tommy, can I be read that? At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and yeah, so the tithe, right, which was 10% of everything that you made, was to be given for three classes of people, sojourners, widows, and the fatherless, and it throws in another group called the Levites. Who are Levites, and why did they get, you know, dibs on the tithe? Can someone explain? Was it the priestly? Huh? The priestly... Uh, yes, they were the priestly class. And when, remember we talked about the division the allotment of lands? The Levites didn't get any allotment. You know why? Why didn't the Levites get allotment of land? Who yeah, knows? Yes, that's true, but well, there's a, what's a practical reason why? That's addressing the practical reason. What's a, what's a practical, <laughs> practical reason? I don't know. <laughs> because, because the Levites were basically saying no farming. You know why? Because they were full-time ministry workers. Their work was the Lord's work, right? And so because they were full-time ministry workers, they didn't get to harvest food, and therefore the tithe was for them to support them. But it's not just for them. I think this is what I was always taught. 
the tithe is for the Levites, right? When we give offerings to churches for ministry workers, oh, that, you know, that works great for me, right? Um, no, it's not just for the Levites. It is, what does it say? It's for the immigrants, it's for the widows, it's for the orphans, in other words, for the poor. This is why we at IGC <coughs> have a portion of our money for mercy ministries. This is for theological reasons, right? Not just because we have compassion and pity, but because we're trying to live out this principle, this ideal. All right? Now, because lack of time, let me just speed through the rest. Thus, when the Bible talks about justice for the poor, it's not merely criminal justice that's being talked about, but economic social justice. Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and the people, and all the people shall say amen. You know, when it talks about justice for the poor, it's not just talking about murder, rape, theft. It's talking about this, this. And therefore, who is someone who perverts justice? Someone who fails to leave the margins. Someone who doesn't uh, allow for redemption of land. Someone who doesn't forgive the debts every seven years. That's what it means. And therefore, if you're not actively participating in a social structure that allows for equitable distribution and for the poor to be defended and lifted up, the Bible says that is unjust. That is perversion of justice. And therefore, if we obey, Deuteronomy 15, there will be no poor among you. Next column. Therefore, righteousness concerns involves a deep concern for social justice. I love this passage. Ezekiel 18. Listen. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right. So, so this is the definition of a righteous man, a holy man before the Lord, right? Verse 6. If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, right? So basically, he doesn't do idol worship. Does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, right? So basically, he doesn't commit adultery. And then the second part is purity laws. But number, uh, verse 7, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, right? He's talking about the cloak. Commits no adult, uh, no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment. Does not lend at interest, right? That's usury. Or take any profit withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he, he, that is righteousness. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. You know what I really love? In the middle of verse 7, it says, commits no robbery. That's like, if you don't commit theft, in the middle of talking about, you know, clothing the poor, giving giving to the hungry, that, so, in the Bible, it doesn't have two categories of righteousness. You know, no theft, no murder, helping the poor. They're embedded. They're like one and the same in the Bible. That's the definition of righteousness, right? Um, and so therefore, this is the conclusion. Israel was supposed to be a community that there was equitable sharing and there was concern for the poor. And therefore, the New Testament church is a fulfill- was a fulfillment of that ideal. Because if you study the Old Testament uh, history, uh, especially the prophets, all of these Torah laws was not obeyed. Right, Israel broke the law. Uh, there were concentrations of wealth. There was a super wealthy. There was a grinding poor, and the prophets would rail on Israel for 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 violating social justice. And the New Testament church was created. I mean, when the New Church New Testament church came into being, they practiced this idea. They read the Torah and they said, "How can we practice this?" And here we have two passages, right? Uh, Acts two. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, right? So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, the rich didn't say, I'm wealthy, and the poor didn't say, oh, tough luck for me. They held it all in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, right? So they're practicing that principle, which is that um, uh, there should be, relatively speaking, a rough, equitable distribution of wealth. And if you have a lot and someone has a little, you need to sell some of what you have, not all, but some and distribute it to someone who doesn't have it. Right? Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had, but they had everything in common. And then listen verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. What verse does that remind you of? Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Can someone cite the passage in the, in the Torah that that reminds you of? I cited it twice. Yeah, Deuteronomy 15. There will be no poor among you. And what does it say in Acts? That was never the case in Israel. They always broke the law. But finally, in the, in the, in the uh, New Testament church, which is the new Israel, the true Israel, finally that came true. There was no poor in the church because they were distributing fairly. They were caring for the poor. That's social justice in the Old Testament. Any questions? Yes. So if I misconceived, like, how come this didn't continue? Like, was it like people's greed that caused it to end? 
if it's such like a like bro without good intentions, like I guess like uh, like why hasn't it continued today or something like that? Uh, my my answer to that is it didn't continue because we are sinful. Mm-hmm. We broke the law. But Acts two, Acts four is the way it should be. Yes, this is true. So the new creation, we're waiting for that uh, reality. So we live in the brokenness of the now. Any any other questions? Or did you want to do a follow up? No comment. No. Any other questions or comments? What what uh? What if like a poor person? What do we say? What do we think about poor people who demand justice? Mm. <laughs> demand, like what sense do we sympathize with that and then also I mean because we do call it mercy ministry as well yeah we don't call it mercy and justice ministry although the, the concept of justice is absolutely there in the Bible uh, I don't know I mean the Bible speaks of the poor having um, uh, uh, that their poverty is not just a matter of pitiable circumstance but it's a matter of injustice and so can the poor decry the injustice being done to them? I don't know. I would say maybe yes. It's a matter of injustice. Um, does that mean we're going to do radical sharing? Everyone who owns homes, let's sell them and let's live it, you know, uh, create a common pile. I think that the vision in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is the ideal that we're striving towards. You know, if, if this is the ideal and we're right here, I'm not saying let's jump right here. I'm saying let's just move right here. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So, if and, then, and then after like two years of here, we'll move right here. <laughs> so if we extended justice, justice to a, like a, a poor person, uh, should they say thank you then? Is yeah, it's, because it's also compassion. So I didn't talk about this, but the Old Testament definitely has that concept that it is mercy, it is compassion, it is love. You know, it's gospel reenactment. So yes, of course. So in that sense, can the poor demand mercy? Mm-hmm. Can a sinner demand grace? Yeah. No. Yeah. But it's mixed. It's yeah. complicated. Good question. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful vision. Uh, not so that it would burden us. Not so that we would feel guilty. But we know we're sinners saved by grace. And you, we're forgiven. We're accepted. Uh, because of what Christ has done. He lived the perfect life of loving the poor, engaging the poor, and therefore we're at peace. But, but Lord, at the same time, thank you for this beautiful vision of, of a community, of a people that loves each other, cares for each other, and that these are not just words, but they actually mean something. We actually care for each other. We actually look out for each other. We pray that we would move towards that ideal and always longing one day for you to come back and restore and, and renew all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right.